I didn't know we were coming straight on and no. I have an old cup, a plastic bottle in my handbag with me. Like I'm someone's elderly aunt who's won a competition in a raffle. I thought you were going to leave your handbag backstage. Yeah, I was, but then it all happened so fast, It did Vic. happen very fast. We were doing um, some historic dance out there. Yes. And then we came here. And it's just that up. celebrity showbiz lifestyle story <laughs> you hear about all the time. With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season five of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2022, and I guarantee you'll be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Hello, and welcome to today's very special bookshelfie episode live from Latitude Festival. Can I hear a little whoop from Latitude Festival? Woo! There's an audience here, and it's wonderful. They look beautiful. This is the Listening Post stage. I'm Vic Hope, and I'm joined by the hilarious multi-award winning comedian, writer, and actor, Ashling B. Hey! Hello. Hello, sir. Ashling and I are going to talk about books and also just about Ashling. Oh, my favourite yes. subject. I can't read, so I'm sort of, I'm going to be winging it for a lot of this, to be honest. I just wanted to be on stage and I lied to Vic in the email. And I don't even mind. Yeah. I'm, oh. I'm very happy to be here. A little bit about Ashling, in case you don't know, but I think from the number of people in this tent, you probably already do. Since winning the prestigious comedy competition, So You Think You're Funny, in 2012, Ashling has become a regular on our screens, from roles on Doctor Who and The Fall, to performing stand-up on the BBC's Live at the Apollo, and popping up on panel shows, including 8 Out of 10 Cats, QI, and Taskmaster. Ashling is, of course, also the creator and star of hit comedy drama, This Way Up, which, for, yeah, I think we have some fans in here, which first aired on Channel 4 and earned her the BAFTA for Breakthrough Talent. Yeah. Oh. And again. It's very weird to just sit here and listen to it go, yeah. I Maybe know. this is the bit where I should have brought you. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> you're here now. Um, series 2 released last year to international critical acclaim, with The Guardian calling it TV so good, it's indistinguishable from magic. Oh. It's very oh. nice. Thank you so much, Ashling, for finding the time to join me here today, for taking a little break from the historical dancing that we were doing just before outside in front of this beautiful audience. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Vic. That's really genuinely, you don't know what to do with your face when <laughs> someone's, I've never gotten married, but I assume that's what it's like when you're the bride and everyone just keeps talking about you and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm great, I'm not I? Um, thank you very much for having me, Vic. Well, we're going to talk about books, but what... What kind of a reader are you? Uh, have you always been an avid reader, a bookworm? Uh, yes, I have. I've always loved reading. And I'm not sure. Is, is everyone here just to get out of the heat or do you also love books? Yay. Yeah. Oh, that didn't answer the question. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I have. I've always loved books. And I think for me, being able to escape into a book has been amazing. That uh, I, I often look for books that don't make me want to go on my phone. Yeah. Because so my attention span is shot to uh, close your ears, darling. Shite, shite, shut, shite. Um, uh, you can open them now. And um, yeah, and I find when I get a book that I can stay in, it helps my attention span and focus just like stay longer. So that's a, a little bit of an escape into a world that's, that's not mine is always feels lovely. 
there's no better feeling than when you are so inside a book, you're so utterly transported and you cannot wait to read it again. You can't wait to pick it up and be leafing through those pages. And then when you get to the end, you're annoyed because it's over. Yes. You were so into it. And then you have to do all your goodbyes to the characters. Yeah. I've just started reading one of Elena Ferrante's book. Oh. You know, The Lost Daughter. She wrote The Lost Daughter, that movie that Olivia Colman's in. And there's like three more books left. And I feel like I'm back in my old Harry Potter stages. I'm like, yes, no goodbyes. I talk to my therapist about it as well. <laughs> um, I don't like saying goodbyes. Um, so yeah, so I, I love when you can, if someone writes more. What kind of fiction do you gravitate towards? Um, I think anything where, I mean, this sounds very, uh, close your eyes again. Or e Oh, no ears were better, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but also eyes wanky. Um, oh, wrong time. Um, so this might sound wanky, but um, uh, I love when it's the first person and you get their point of view in a book and you're following the character's journey and you see how they're privately feeling as opposed to how, and how they're experiencing the world. Um, so I love when you're sort of inside someone's head and following that character around. They're some of my favorite ones. I think that's what teaches us empathy. When we mm. literally walk a day in someone else's shoes, in yeah. so many people's shoes through books, that's how we learn to know that everyone is going through something mm. and they have their reasons for their actions, for their thoughts, for their feelings, for the way that they navigate the world. And the more we can read, the more we can understand that and hopefully go about the world with a bit more kindness. Yes, and, and you see their motives, which always... I remember um, when I was in The Fall, the classic murder uh, drama, um, where Jamie Dornan kept on murdering Irish brunettes. And I was like, surely it's my turn now. Um, and it was. Um, and uh, I remember him saying that when he was trying to research his character, who's a very handsome murderer, and that people were like, oh, if I had to be murdered by anyone... Um, <laughs> People would often say that, and I'm like, oh, you don't have to be murdered by anyone. Um, that's not the choice. Um, but I remember him saying that to, to get the audiences, um, to, you had to make them sort of give him a human side. And when he was looking at the character, uh, that he would be a great dad. And that kind of messes with your, even when I'm writing my characters in the TV show, I always try to give them like, other sides to them that are surprising so no one becomes the bad guy or the awful ex or or even that i'm not so nice all the time that sometimes i'm a bit of a close your ears dickhead um <laughs> not quick you enough know. you didn't hear that did you i'm trying not to teach you any sure. new words but it sounds like you already know them all from home not judging not surprised this at. is a literature test like, yeah. it's what it's all about we're learning new words it's exactly. vocabulary it's words you know <laughs> I'm the Susie Dent of curse words exactly um, Ashley we're going to get straight into your first bookshelf yes. book which is Animal by Sarah Pascoe a combination of autobiography and evolutionary history, this book provides a witty and compelling insight into what moulds and affects modern women. Filled with plenty of anecdotes and the science to back it up, Sarah's book explores love, the body and consent with reference to her own securities mm. and insecurities. What does this book mean to you? Um, so does everyone know who Sarah Pascoe is, the stand-up? Um, so Sarah Pascoe is also one of my best friends and when someone you love writes something or puts something out there there's a bit of trepidation because you're like oh, what if I don't like it or what if I don't connect with it and you have to do the sort of brave face to them and when she wrote this book like I call Sarah my unofficial GP because if she didn't do comedy she genuinely researches all of the science and in I think a lot of comedians are sort of failed teachers where they're trying to show a subject matter using comedy 
comedy and their own lives to sort of um, make it more accessible. And when I read her book, Animal, it's all about like the history of human beings and what makes us tick. And there are so many bits of actual science in it that just blew my mind. And Sarah, like we all talk about our personal lives quite a lot in comedy and put our stuff into it. But Sarah does it a bit more than sometimes I even do. And there's a bravery in that, in the sort of degree to which she'll go to sort of like bring her own stories into it. That's so vulnerable that I'm not sure even I'd allow and it makes you feel so privileged that she would have used her own stories and stuff that happened in her childhood to allow us in to learn more for ourselves. I remember her even, one, one fact I learned from it, I was going through a breakup at the time and we kept on texting each other, myself and my ex. And she was, in, in the book, it talked about the bonding hormone serotonin, which is when you have a kid or something like that, what makes you go, that was really sore, but I'll still look after you. Um, and it's this bonding hormone you have with your loved ones or when you're in bed with someone and, and it develops bonding. And that dopamine is sort of like... Uh, a sort of a fictional version of that bonding hormone. So if you have a cup of coffee or a drink or drugs or whatever the thing is that sort of gives you a dopamine happy hit, it's a mimic of serotonin, but it's not real. It's not real, it's just a sort of hit. And she was like, every time you're texting back and forth, you're getting a hit of dopamine that reminds you of the old bonding system. And what you have to do is try and break away for like 30 days to break that physical memory. And there's loads of stuff in it like that, which just when she was explaining it, I, I just learned a lot of what was sometimes happening in my body. And I, I was so surprised by how medical and scientific it was. It's not a comedy book. It's, it's, she's a scientist writing um, sort of about anthropology and the body and biology, just using comedy. And it was just so funny as well how she's written it and made it so accessible. And I was like, oh, imagine if our... I know a lot of people um, felt like, God, if I had gotten that book when I was a 16-year-old girl and knew more about what was happening in my body, it could have changed so many feelings. And so that's why I was so proud of her, but also I learned loads from the book and my friend, which was mad. When you're telling stories about yourself, about your feelings, about your personal life or experiences, does comedy as a vehicle make it easier for you? Or does the expectation to be funny make it a little bit more difficult to express yourself authentically? I think you have to find the genre. Roisin Conaty, another stand-up. Do you know who Roisin Conaty is? Yes. Um, Roisin always said to me, she was like, you might have a story and you have to work out what format the story will fit into. So th some things I've tried as stand-up and I'm like, Ugh, it just doesn't work. Yeah. You need to do more jokes when you're doing stand-up. And actually, if you can make it a character, you can find it more easy to be vulnerable and write it into a TV show. Or it might be an article, or you have to find the right way to tell it in the best way possible. So some stuff I felt, oh, it doesn't work in, in stand-up, and I would push it into this way up. And you have more um, creative allowance. I don't like lying when I do stand-up. Yeah. You try, other than maybe fudging the odd name so you don't get sued by your exes um, then you mostly I try not to I do truthful stuff whereas at least in this way up or something you can make it a character you can split it between different people and stuff like that in 2012 when you won so you think you're funny you were the first woman to win that award in 20 years yeah I was the only person who entered that year um. <laughs> and I remember you saying that um, you felt like you needed to apologize for your success because mm. you, you maybe hadn't grafted enough or that might be the perception of it. 
have you moved on since then? Do you do you feel like you've earned your place that 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 you're supposed to be here? Yeah, I think that happens with time, and I'm sure everyone's had that in their workplace, where you don't feel like you're owed the situation, and it's an, it's really annoying that the only thing that um, fixes it generally is time and time again working and not getting fired. And you're like, oh, I'm still not fired. Maybe, just maybe, I'm not terrible. And so I think time has sort of fixed that. But I would, I would hope that, I mean, I'm, I'm not that old, but things have changed in the last 15 years. And I'd hope that a lot of the younger female stand-ups coming up, or just any stand-up who doesn't fit the classical mold, yeah. feels like they are owed a place. I remember there was this um, American stand-up, and I can't remember who it is, and he was in his 60s, and he was a gay stand-up, and he remembers his uh, nephew sent him a text and said, oh my God, I need to talk to you, something's happened at school. And he remembers, he came from the South, and he remembers um, like when he was trying to come out as a young gay man in the South in America, it was so homophobic, and he would get beaten up and, um, and endured so much violence. And so he was ready to talk to his nephew about the awful stuff he assumed he was enduring. And he rang up his nephew, and his nephew was like, it's so awful, they're putting the gay prom on the, on the day after the straight prom. <laughs> And, and he was like, that's your problem. And yeah. you're like, that's what you, every kind of generation fights for, that you hope that's the problem someone else would have. Yeah. Like you'd hope it's that like female comedians just don't like what's in their dressing room now or that you're not. And I, I, I profited from everyone who had a hard time yeah. in front of me. And that's a sort of, you hope it changes with a little bit of time for and the people. And in turn, you're paving the way for another generation and another generation of female comedians coming up. And... Um, when it comes to paving the way for the next generation, it actually brings me on to your second bookshelfy book, mm -hmm. which is Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race mm -hmm. by Rennie Edo Lodge. This is a vital wake-up call uh, to tackle pervasive, institutionalised racism. It's an unflinching polemic which reframes the debate around race. Based on a blog post uh, that Edo Lodge wrote in 2014, the book was born out of years of frustration and white inaction around racism, from lazy cultural stereotyping to open hostility. How come you picked this? I picked it because when I read it, I, growing up in Ireland, uh, it was so monocultural and we didn't even know what, what thing, like there was no other cultures. And I remember when I uh, picked it up and read it, when you talked there about inaction, sometimes it, it feels like you want to be told what to do, which yeah. is not the job of any black person or especially women to kind of tell you what to do. But it was really nice in this book. It talked about like guilt doing nothing. And just generally for anyone trying to help, whether it's another community or another group of people or the friends in your life, feeling guilty you're not doing enough or an action sort of doesn't help. So going, oh, that must be awful. It doesn't really do anything. And it, it for me, it, it, it made me want to engage more in action and how could I use my platform to help it in, in the way I could have influence. And also, it was just a reminder of how much history... Uh, and, and generally, we're all getting to this in so many ways. Like, in Ireland, most of our history that we learned was British history. So we learned sort of about the world in a little bit about our own, but we learned British history or American bits of American history. And so when I moved over here, I was so surprised that, like, in British schools, you don't learn about sort of what happened in Roscommon in 1948. And you're like, what? Um, and I, I was so surprised that it sort of didn't always work backwards. And I was on a job with a young actor about um, 
oh, it must have been about eight years ago. And he was reading a book about black history and uh, he was of Nigerian descent and he, and he was only kind of 20 and he remembers putting up his hand in class in, in the middle of a history class in London um, and being like, Miss, during this time, the 1920s, where were all the black people? And she sort of laughed and said, don't be silly. Mm. And the idea that it was first of all putting him down when he put his hand up, yeah. but also that you're like, that, that whole like changing our mindset and the frame uh, at which we come from. And sorry to reference another book, but um, when I read Grace and Perry's book, All Man, and he talks about how we, it's like we use, and I know there's a lot of you guys in here, big fan of some of your work, uh, white guys, bridges, <laughs> buildings that you've done, lovely stuff. Um, honestly, big fan. Um, I've had sex with loads of you, so... You're welcome. Um, but that he was talking about how we use kind of stri- straight white men almost like as the norm and that we think anything under or around that is like minorities or different and that's just a perspective like where we open up a map and we have like the UK and Ireland in the middle but somewhere else the middle is a different part of the map because it's a sphere. And that just, just stuff like that really just kind of reframed my brain and gave me so much to process and think about. And so that was a really important book for me and the amount of history that it had that I had no idea about. Yeah. Even though we'd learned so much British history, we hadn't really learned it at all. Well, Didn't know about the it. Brixton riots or anything that had happened. History is written by whoever's in charge yeah. at the time. I did my dissertation on um, the erasure of Afro-Argentines because there was a time when Argentina and Buenos Aires in particular had a lot of black people and they just don't Mm. exist anymore. I was like, well, what happened to them? And everyone was like, I don't know. Like, we don't talk about it. It's not been written down because Mm. the people in charge of writing history didn't want anyone to know about that. And in fact, they were used as cannon fodder in wars and, you know, lived in areas like San Telmo where there was huge yellow fever outbreaks. And this stuff doesn't doesn't necessarily make the books and that's something that we can actually all change. Mm. We can change. Um, You talked about the idea that silence is being complicit Mm. Um, and I think that is something that we had a conversation about in 2020 when the Black Lives Matter movement Mm -hmm. swelled um, and it made a lot of people angry Mm -hmm. and it was having these conversations it it felt like people didn't want to because it made them hold a mirror up to themselves Mm. and, and, and have to think about some difficult things. Did you experience any backlash or any reaction that that wasn't comfortable when you did speak up or show your allyship? I don't think so. I mean, there'll always be some old idiot on Twitter. The people who follow me are a very broad uh, kind of spectrum of people. Some people are like, I love QI! I don't like rice! And you're like, okay, mate, fine. Yeah, fine. And my poor sister, my sister has a... Like, she runs this thing called the Costume Directory. And sometimes if I mention her on Instagram, she'll suddenly get kind of a swathe of panel show followers going, this isn't funny at all. And you're like, no, it was, this was my sister doing costumes. Um, uh, but when that happened, I, I often think about intent and where we're afraid to get it wrong. And the idea that if we get something wrong, there's going to be this backlash. And I think more people than we realize see intent and I remember I was one of the people who posted one of the black squares at the time. And I remember on the day thinking, I'm not sure I understand what this is. I don't think anyone's did. Yeah, and I, I, I remember thinking, God, I not, but I better do it. I, I, someone else I saw was doing it. And I was like, I better jump on the bandwagon and post a black square. And first of all, I, and this is a side note, I accidentally screen grabbed the black square 
from my ex-boyfriend's page and I didn't notice until my sister said, were you supposed to leave his Insta no. ping? And then I deleted it and posted another black square, which I cropped properly. But I, like, and I was like, this is a roller coaster of emotions. And, um, and I remember thinking, I don't totally understand this. And I try not to post anything, whether it's, no matter what it's about, if I don't really understand yeah. it. Because I'd want my intent to be like, what's the action from using your platform? And do you understand it? And it was that one thing. And then afterwards, people were like, this isn't right. And I was like, oh. I did, and I, but I left it up there. I didn't delete it because I wanted a sort of historical account of when I was a bit of an, an idiot. And, but I think people are more likely to see your broader intent if your intent is to try and help, not display allyship. And it's hard. Sometimes you're like, am I doing this to look? Is it performative? Is it performative? Yeah. And when you are a performer and you have a platform, <laughs> yeah. you're like, sometimes it, you're like, oh, I have to have a bit of a question with myself and go, am I jumping on this because I feel I should or do I understand and feel like my voice could help in any way? Or are you just sort of like putting content out to look a certain way and it's not um, you know I don't think anyone's um, free of maybe being a little bit from yeah. both columns sometimes and we still move we're still not we there still yet move. we still move Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people Looking for a treat to pair with your favourite book? Bailey's is the perfect accompaniment to enjoy either over ice or over coffee. There are no better friendships than those formed around brilliant books. And since you're listening, we're guessing you love books as much as we do. The Women's Prize has created an exclusive community that gives you a bookish backstage pass, offering surprises and freebies, plus unmissable reading recommendations and book chat from our founder friends, including me, Nick Hope. Search for Women's Prize Friend to become a friend today. We cannot wait to meet you. Let's move on to your third book now, which is The Green Road by Anne Enright. Oh, yes. yes. Um, so this is a book about fracture uh, and family set on the west coast of Ireland, which was shortlisted for the Women's Prize back in 2016. The four Madigan children have left their Irish coastal home for lives they could never have imagined in Dublin, at New York and beyond. But when their mother, Rosaline, decides to sell family home, the now adult children return for a final Christmas, a feast which will force them to confront the weight of family ties. God, that was read out so beautifully. You don't even need to read the book. <laughs> I love but if that. You want, if it. you want to, you can. Pretty much um, it. Why did you pick this? When did you first read this? I, I probably read it about five or six years ago. Has anyone read Anne Enright? Quite yes. Yeah, Anne Enright, what, she won, like, I think, was it the Booker Prize? for Was it The Gathering? I think was her that won a big uh, prize for fiction. And she's an Irish writer. I first came across probably in my uh, 20s, what, last year. Um, and she <laughs> has such a lovely uh, use of language. It's so beautiful. And she had this book of short stories and she has a darkness in her writing that's also really funny. And I love that. I like when you can put kind of, and I think that's a very Irish way of writing or talking is like being able to use death and darkness alongside comedy. Um, and we don't find it dark, but people describe it as dark sometimes, like darkly comic. And we're like, but that's a normal day <laughs> laughing around a coffin. Um, and uh, we're not supposed to make jokes here while granny's dead in the box. Whoops. Um, 
And this uh, this book follows um, it's, it's two, three sisters and a brother through kind of different times in their lives from like the mid 80s to the 90s. And again, it's just seeing their different perspectives of different situations. And I love writing about like This Way Up is all about sisters and family. And I, I always want to try and write things, imagine what it's like from their point of view, and you can also get it from their point of view. And I think when families fight, it's for a writer, it's really interesting to try and understand um, understand where people would have been coming from. And that's harder to do sometimes. It's harder to try and go, I see their point of view, but I don't agree. And this book is a beautiful story of that. And also, one of the characters in it, he's like a, like a farmery Irish guy. Can everyone still hear, by the way? A little bit and of can music. everyone hear that music? It's not just in my head. No, no, no. Okay. There's that's, also some voices, and I don't know where they're coming from, but I think it's from a different stage. It's the comedy stage. In, yeah. Boo, comedy. <laughs> um, try sitting down and doing it. That's difficult. Um, but the Green Road is a- about this family, and one of the characters um, a- is like an Irish farmery type who only when he moves to New York gets to come out. And I think of all of the young Irish men existing at a time when it was illegal to be gay in Ireland. It was a crime. There were so many things that were crimes in Ireland. At one point in Ireland, suicide was a crime and it was punishable by hanging. And that's the most Irish situation I've ever heard in my life. Um, But he goes to New York, but he lands into New York quite a green Irish person during the 80s. Um, and this is a spoiler alert, sorry, um, but he ends up in the AIDS epidemic and, and gets sick. And um, I remember working with a makeup artist in New York. I was doing this show called Living With Yourself, which is on Netflix. It's with Paul Rudd. And there was um, a man in his 50s who was my makeup artist, and he grew up during that time as a young gay man in New York where a lot of people would flock to to kind of be themselves. And he talks about, like, in It's a Sin, the panic and the hysteria and... He also talks about the erasure of a group of young men who didn't have children to go on and tell their stories. They might have nephews or nieces, but this whole group of people, and that's what was so amazing about It's a Sin and Russell writing it, that there's this actually really interesting people, a really interesting time in history with all of these different types of people in one of the most amazing cities in the world. And all of their stories are just gone because they don't have kids or young people because they were all like young men just gone in their 20s and the stories aren't there so it's sometimes friends telling their stories about their friends and that really struck me that there's no 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 people's children yeah. to carry on their tales and and that was what was something that really stood out for me in the book and them losing their brother and not knowing that their brother was and him being afraid that the sisters would judge him more than they missed having their brother and so it's just, it's a be- it's just a beautiful book and again you get everyone's point of view yeah in it you know what that's why it's a sin was so stunning Mm. because it was devastating it was so sad i had to keep stopping it to cry and yet it was also a show about friendship and love and color and vibrancy and partying and a great time Mm. and those stories need to be told too yeah because that's that's what we don't want to lose now, this is a book as well about family. Mm-hmm. Um, how close are you with your family? You mentioned your, your sister. They're all dead to me. I don't like my family. Um, <laughs> Sinead, who I talked about earlier, is a poor man's me at best. <laughs> but follow her on the costume directory on Instagram if you want some zero laughs. 
mostly about costumes. That was actually me trolling her. I troll her. Um, my brother-in-law, Madov, his favourite thing is to troll any Daily Mail article about me and screen grab it and send it to me. And, and, and that's like his big joke. Or when, or when someone comments on any of my Instagrams and says things like, it just shows you that anyone can do it. And he does send me those all the time. And I'm like, okay, mad so. Um, but yeah, I'm very close. Our family, it was just us little three women sort of growing up, myself, my mom and my sister. And so I think any story about kind of family and, and different points of view. And I think in a, uh, I always wanted to be in like the big family where there'd be noise in the house. So this book as well has like four brothers and sisters. And I've always kind of draw, been drawn towards people who have big families and that there'd be noise in the house. Because we lived in the middle of nowhere, myself, Sinead and Mammy. And if someone creaked or moved, I'd know who it was. And we were always aware of each other's sounds. I'm like, oh, Mammy's upstairs, about to rise. Probably time for a tea and a Kit Kat. <laughs> Off she goes. And, and there was just no noise or surprise in the house. And even like myself and Sinead still get, if someone goes, Ashling, I'll go, ah! Like, we, we're really jumpy because we don't ever expect anyone to be around. Um, so, I, yeah, we're very, very close for, for that reason, I think, as well. And we're a very bonded little family. So, that I loved... That's, like, another reason I loved... And I love family stories, whether it's, like, writing about it in my show or even watching Succession. My favourite part of Succession, I, you forget about the... What I think Succession does so well is you forget about the business deals. It's all about brothers and sisters fighting and having issues with your parents. And I think most more people relate to it than that, than obviously the helicopters bit. Um, but yeah, I, I love those sorts of stories. It can go both ways, you know. I was in a big family. There was, we were four as well, mm. um, me and my brothers. And you always just have to be on edge. Like you never know what's going to happen. One day I came home from school and my brother was waiting behind the door with, um, with a turkey that we'd been preparing for Christmas. And he hit me on the back of the head as I opened the door. With a turkey? Yeah, I hit the deck. I passed out. And when I came to, he put the turkey's neck in my mouth and I threw straight up. It all happened so fast, and that's the kind of thing you need to watch that out for. <laughs> this sounds like a seg. Was it cooked? No, it was raw. Raw turkey. Yeah. Vic, that's full murder. That's attempted you know murder. I mean? Do you know what I mean? So he hit you with a raw turkey. You fell, and he put a bit of the raw turkey in your mouth. And I threw up. All in one episode. It happened so fast. Oh my God. So I didn't grow up with any brothers. So a lot of the bullying we used to do was mm, kind of psychological manipulation. <laughs> kind of like, well, you sat in that chair. Well, okay. <laughs> what do you think of yourself today? Do you think you're a big deal? Do you? Like, that's what we sort of do to each other. Brothers and sisters, get like... Even you with the turkey. It's honestly, it's amazing. You always had to watch out. There could be kicks on the back of the legs as you're walking up the stairs. Woken up to water thrown in your face. Anything could happen at any time. Oh, your poor parents. I know. I, I know. know Rob Delaney has, has a bit of stand about it. He is all boys. And he talks about how they're always just trying to... Sometimes, like, one time they put all the knives on the floor when he turned his back and pretended it was a swimming pool of knives. And they jumped into the knives. And I'm like, oh my God, if that, that was the most contraceptive story I've ever heard. Your children started swimming in the knives. <laughs> to just keep an eye on them all the time. Holy God. One thing um, I would like to ask if, if it's okay. I know you lost your father at a young age. Mm -hmm. um, but on the subject of family, do you remember a change in the family dynamic 
before and after? Are we, are we too young? No, I was too young. So my, uh, my father passed away when I was about three. Right. Um, and it's sort of, we didn't uh, really, I suppose we didn't really know any different. Like we knew there was a loss there, but our little unit was so sort of small that that's what we grew up with. I mean, I think when you're that young, you, you know there's something missing. And I still always felt like there's something missing, like there's someone waiting to come in the door. And I, I think there's different forms of grief. Like I can't um, imagine what it must be like to, to lose someone who you really know really well and you miss them in your daily life. And anyone who's had anyone pass away, especially in the last couple of years, that must be so awful. Um, but it was that sort of like something's missing there, but you don't know what it is type of thing. I think when you have a loss as a kid, it's a different sort of grief. But I didn't, we didn't know any different. And I wrote an article a couple of years ago sort of talking about it um, and trying to sort of destigmatize suicide in particular. And sorry if that's triggering for anyone. Um, but I want to try and use comedy to talk about it because it was very difficult to talk about. And um, uh, I suppose with, with that loss, one thing that really helped me was that I, I was doing like grief counseling as, as an adult. And they were like, is there any way you can reframe the bad thing that has happened to you? And if anything bad has ever happened to you, that's not something you want to reframe as something positive. You fight against it. You're like, there's not a chance I'm going to do that. That feels, that feels like a betrayal to me. And actually to have to sit down and write the positives of a loss or a death really just shifted something in my brain that really helped. I could literally feel a sort of like gear change and it was to find like, oh, I grew up without any men in the house. So I was sort of in charge, lording about myself like I was Anna Wintour in a Vogue magazine, just going, no, no, don't like it. Where's my coffee? Um, and I grew up thinking, I was actually saying this to Munya, uh, who's on very soon, a very funny comedian, follow on Instagram. Um, way funnier than my sister on Instagram. <laughs> and uh, that um, for me, men when I was growing up were sort of elderly people, or my mother was a tired jockey, um, or jockeys, or passed away. So men to me were actually like, oh, they're not that dangerous at all. Sure, they're only old, dead, or jockeys. Um, <laughs> and, and it gave me, I was like, the people who are in charge are women. And then when I started going out into the world, I was like quite surprised what a shock. by yeah, this. Loads yeah, of them everywhere. So I did get, there were things that not that it was a positive but I think I was able to eventually see a different way and, and that wasn't it helped me it gave me something rather than it was just tr me trying to be grateful or it, 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 it freed me a little bit that I think as well which was positive Ashling, your fourth <gasps> bookshelfy book is The Audacity yes by Catherine Ryan Written with Catherine's trademark wit and, of course, audacity, Catherine's memoir traces her path to fame from naive Hooters waitress to superstar comedian. She shows women they can be themselves and that they should do so unapologetically. How can you fit this? Uh, so I assume you all know who Catherine Ryan is? Yes. yes. So Catherine Ryan is one of my best friends and I know everyone's like, you can't have that many best friends, you've got to choose one. Um, and they do, I do a rotating circle each year of who's number one in my best friends. Um, but Catherine, Catherine and I have very different ways of loving and loving each other in our friendships. And she's a lot of a less emotional fish than me. I really absorb things that happen and I can get really bogged down uh, by feelings. Or if I have a bad day at work, I'll bring it home with me. And Catherine genuinely can leave work at the door. She's like, I made my fucking money. Bye. And it's, it's, there's a real lesson to it. And I listened to this book which I'm not sure. Do you think listening to books is cheating? 
No, it's not cheating at all. Neither do I. Someone said that to me. Oh, so you didn't read it. You listened to it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm busy. Well, I wasn't busy. I was lazy. But but I love, uh, especially if it's uh, fact, not fiction, I love listening to books. And I feel like I'm carrying around someone with me when I sort of walk around. Like I've got this little friend as I walk around. I'm not a big, sorry, podcast listener, but I love listening to books for some reason. I think because they're longer. You get more time with something. And I, so I listened to Catherine reading it and it was really strange because I felt like I had more emotional chats with my friend it, through her book than I maybe did. Like I learned a lot right, more about her friend yeah. and that's not just the reason I love the book. Her, like Roisin was saying to me before, there are certain things that she was able to put into a book that really expanded a lot of her brilliant stand-up that needs to go along and make you laugh every couple of minutes. And it's like there was enough space there for her lengthier ideas to give. Um, and even though she's, you know, she's a kind of hard ass, there's a beautiful softness to her that you get in the book. And it's not just about being audacious as a woman. It's about sort of being audacious as anyone and having the audacity to own your space and be confident. And someone who's unapologetically confident like that really... I just found it really inspiring despite knowing and uh, being like such a good friend with this person for 15 odd years. There was this other side that was within the book um, and loads of bit of great gossip in it as well. Um, and yeah, I just, there was just something about the word, the audacity that is seen as a negative, like the audacity of her coming in here, the audacity of him thinking he's, he's entitled to that, but actually to own audaciousness was really brilliant and lovely and, 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 and she also talks about, I like when someone puts things that were difficult or messy in their lives into things as well. And she put that into it. And I thought it was very brave and vulnerable. She didn't do a book just to sell books. She really is a beautiful author mm. as well. And she's, she, she's such, Catherine has, sometimes in stand-up, some people are performers and some people are great writers. She truly can do it all. Like Catherine can do so much. Even with her podcast, she turns over news and ideas so quickly. I've actually never met her or met a stand-up as quick and who processes things and sees them from different angles as Catherine. So I just loved it. I, I just I loved it outside of her being my friend. By the very nature of what you do, when you you're putting your stand-up out into the world or you're you're creating a show that you put out into the world, it's for an audience. You, You've got to want them to like it. You've got to want them to watch it, to enjoy it. Mm. What's your journey been when it comes to wanting, needing to be liked, how to process that? Um, I think what, I, what I've always struggled with, and when I, at least when I wrote This Way Up, I had a lot more authorship over what went out. And I thought to myself, at least if I like it, and you say, I don't like your show, then at least I'm going, ah, you really don't, because that's what I think is the best version of that story. Now, after that, you actually have limited budget, limited time. You're like, oh, it absolutely could have been better if I'd been given five more minutes. And I, like, I've never been able to watch my shows since they've aired, because I would notice lots of things I would have loved to edit it. Um, and uh, that, that need to be liked is definitely something that a lot of people have, but definitely comedians who are like, like me. Um, but when you start making work and you've more control of what actually airs and you feel like that's my best, then at least it's easier to sleep at night. What's been hard is sometimes if you feel like when I've done panel shows and they've left in jokes which make sense for the conversation, but I'm like, oh, I know on the night that that wasn't that funny and yet that's gone out on telly and I've thought, oh, I wonder if people think 
that that's what I think is really funny, but it's not. The joke didn't work. I would never have left that in the edit, but it was up to someone else's control. And to have to learn to let that go was sometimes very difficult. Mm. So I've never, I've never watched a single panel show I've done in 10 years. I've never watched an episode of 8 out of 10 Cats with me or Taskmaster or... I just once, have to remember... Once it's done, it's done. What are you going to do? Mm, what exa- are you exactly. Do? And I will... I know my personality runs over yeah. it. I would, I would not be able to watch it. I'd be like, is that what my nose looks like? Or, oh my God, I didn't think my hair was like that on the day. Or, oh, Ashling, you're Irish. I didn't even know. Listen to your voice. <laughs> and it's, it, sometimes when I'm on stage, even sitting here now, I feel like I've got the presence of Johnny Vegas. And when I see that I'm not hit, I'm genuinely shocked. Like when people take pictures and I'm like, I'm like, who is that? Like I don't associate the feeling with the look of the thing. So I just, I just kind of go, do you know what? Once it's done, because I don't have any control over it and it will make me sad, I have to let it go out to the audience and just let them, yeah. It's theirs now and they yeah, can do what they want Yeah, I know I'll give it. myself a hard time, I think. Some people don't. Some people love watching their stuff and they learn from watching themselves, but I know I'd get in a little yeah. bit of a spiral. I'm the same. A lot of my colleagues will use it as a way of self-critiquing and mm. then learn from it. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, if I do my best, I'm doing my best. Yeah. And then we'll move on and do my best at the next thing. And that's okay. And then I'll go home and have a nice time. Yeah. I think being on screen or even, it's like, you know, when you, have you, do you ever listen to your own voicemail? I know no one really used voicemail before. Um, but like you accidentally get through to your own voicemail and you hear your own voice. And you're like... Like, hi, this is Ashling. You're like, oh my God, stop. It's like that, but with your face, your body, trying to be funny. It's like all the worst things. You're like, no, 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 no. So that's where I draw the line, looking at myself. Ashling, let's talk about your fifth and final book, Shelter <gasps> yes. Book. And it's so good, and I'm so mm. excited to get to talk about this. It's Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. Yes. Have you read it? Has anyone read it? Has anyone read Sorrow oh. and Bliss by Meg Mason? It came out, what was it, two, a year ago? So it's a relatively new yeah. book. And it's just so good. It's so good. It was shortlisted for the Women's Prize of Fiction this year. Um, it is no wonder, because honestly, it's just so remarkable. It blends brutal honesty and laugh-out-loud humour to tackle the theme of long-term mental illness. Um, the book follows Martha, who's just turned 40 and has struggled to find contentment throughout her adult life. It has a searingly honest portrayal of a marriage breakdown and possibly one of the best written sibling relationships I've ever read. Um, when you chose this book, you actually told us that you saw a lot of yourself in Martha, good and bad. So can you speak a little bit more about that? Um, so the book follows... Uh, in, it's in, we're inside Martha's head, so we're following her in the first person. And she's very, very funny, but seems to upset people sometimes without knowing why. And at the start, we think that's just her sort of personality or character. And what's interesting is when you're following someone's journey, you're seeing their point of view of how people react to you. And then we all do it. We put the narrative on that. So someone was a bit quiet. Maybe I said something. Oh, my God, you know what? They've never been nice to me. I don't like them. They're not my friend. Now, that person might have been tired, whatever it is. But we do little narratives in our head the whole time. And that's what she's doing throughout it. And then only at the end of the book do we almost like a, a reveal do we see actually what was going on for those characters when they tell her like you know I bloody loved you like I loved you that day or um, and it's it's just and we one thing as well which I love is we never find out what's wrong with the character and this would happen sometimes with This Way Up I'm not sure if you've seen the show 
but I was really adamant that I would never put a label on what was wrong with Anya or what her illness was or what caused the nervous breakdown because then you were going, oh, it's that and can you fix that and that's the problem rather than just sometimes whether you are neurodiverse or have an issue or you're depressed or whatever it is, sometimes it's just being in existence and being yourself and trying to navigate the world for who you are and that pain can be sort of universal no matter what sort of thing you're dealing with and so I love she kind of almost calls it I can't remember what she calls it but it's like in Harry Potter when it's like he who must not be named she almost calls it like that thing throughout the book so when the doctor finally diagnosed me with that thing I couldn't believe and I went and researched that thing and how that thing had affected my life the whole she never names what it is and we don't really need to know. Like, there'd be things you could guess from some of the things that she says. But it's just and the, how funny the book is as well. And I suppose I connected to the idea of that you can talk about pain through someone funny and how being sort of difficult for want of a word was always her thing. She was thinking, I'm difficult even though I'm funny. And she forgot to remove any element of being lovable from yeah. that. And only at the end does she realise how loved she is and she just kind of hadn't seen it. And again, like what I was talking about earlier on about the thing that changed my head about my dad, the I, we can hold on to a narrative about our lives for so long and we're like, well, I'm like this because of X, Y and Z. And I was talking to my therapist about how I'm like this because of this. And imagine, and I think this happens as you get older and you reach stages of your parents' age, that you suddenly start seeing your childhood from your own age or your parents' age and you realise what an idiot you are comparatively to what you expected of your parents and you start looking back and it's just as she gets older looking back at stuff that happens to her as a kid and a teenager and looking at it from an adult's point of view and the mother-daughter relationship is really beautiful in it as well and she starts to understand her mother more and how she would have talked earlier on about her mother totally changes when she realizes she's an older She's a lot older as a woman, looking back at her mother would have been in her mid to late 30s to early 40s, coping in the way she was. And she probably also had that thing yeah. and how that was displaying. And it was just, it's just a go. I would love everyone to read it just because it, that's the journey I found through. And I found it like, oh, ouch. There's a word I learned not long ago, um, sonda, which is the realization that every passerby has a life as vivid and complex as your own. Yeah. And you see that realization, that journey to that realization throughout mm. the book, as all of these characters, you realize they're going through so much themselves as, as we all are. Um, and I, I found the most evocative um, depictions of whatever it is that she has when she described the most mundane things, like getting dressed in the morning, mm. not being able to leave the house, this blistering loneliness, which, you portray really beautifully as well in This Way Up. Is that something that you found difficult to explore or actually very easy? Uh, easy for uh, easy in that it was a subject matter I cared about and I wanted to deal with loneliness in a sort of way. I, I remember reading somewhere that uh, people treated loneliness a bit like they would have treated like some terrible disease back in the day or even COVID. Like you're afraid if you talk about it or tell people you have it, they're afraid they'll get it off you because to be lonely sort of feels like what you're saying is there's something wrong with me. You just haven't seen it yet. But once you, if I'm lonely, like you'll want to leave too. 
and it actually doesn't make people connect. It feels a bit disgusting to be lonely as a, as a state to exist. And I was like, if I can make someone that seems lovable lonely, then you can, it just, it was almost like going straight into the thing I'd sort of fear most about someone looking at me as, and if I can tackle it there, then that will sort of be quite freeing as well. And I even remember, I mean, I've talked about this before, when the first series of This Way Up came out and I talked to a journalist about um, loneliness and the Guardian wrote the, like put me on the front of the Guardian and inside and on the main page of the Guardian, they had my face like this and loneliness underneath my face. <laughs> and I was like, ah! Why did you like Victoria's Secret model or something? But they had loneliness and I was like, oh no, I'm the face of loneliness. <laughs> and I was so, here was this me on the front cover of the Observer magazine. Yeah. And I was so embarrassed that my first instinct was like, oh, how do I, is there any way they can take it down? Has it gone to all the shops yet? Have people seen it? What are they going to think? What are they going to think? And uh, that was something I had to sort of process through. And I'm like, oh, the world didn't fall apart. No, but, but I felt really embarrassed by the feeling because it was me, not the character as well. And it's one thing she deals really well with as well. And again, so many people get in touch with me about that now and you'll never know by the looks of the people or the people who come up to you that that's their thing as well and it, it, I'm very my mother doesn't suffer from loneliness even when she's been alone she doesn't have it and I think if you have it it's something you sort of carry around it doesn't matter if you're in a relationship or not or around people it's sort of like a little a little sort of hole somewhere mm. And that's what I wanted to sort of show in the show. And that's a massive... I'd forgotten that I connected actually so much with that in her book as well. Because I loved this person in the book. And yet she felt lonely. And I was like, oh, I don't want you to be. I want to be your friend. Um, and, but that's not the key to fixing it either. I really do urge anyone who hasn't read it to, to, to pick it up. It's a really beautiful book and you've sold it so well. I get 50p for yeah, every yeah, book. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sold, so... Ashling, if you had to choose... Any <gasps> one of your five books. Desert Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which would it be? What's, what's your favourite? Or which could you read over and over again? I, that's really... Because two of them are my best friends. Yeah. This is a WhatsApp group ready to kick off, guys. <laughs> Before that re for that reason, I'm not going to pick Sarah or Catherine. Only because I can't pick between... So I'll kill them both. Um, I, yeah, I can't because I can't. I'd rather... Is this like if I'm on a desert island, I'd like them to come, so maybe they could read me their books. Um, oh, that's oh, that's awful. That question. You're really struggling with this. I'm sorry. It wasn't yes. supposed to be like this. I think because uh, it wasn't supposed to be like this. It wasn't this. supposed like, to be. We were just doing historical dancing outside. Oh my god! It's taking a turn for the worst. Um, ooh. Uh, 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 maybe I'll take. Maybe I'll take Meg Mason's book because she sent me an email. And, th and isn't that nice when you get an email and I'm like, oh, well, that's worked. You know, because here I am talking about it and I pick her. Maybe, yeah, maybe that. Maybe, oh, oh God, I don't know now. No, I don't. Can I, yeah. I, can I just let her take all five? Is that, I'm just looking at the producer. You can take all five. You know when it's kind of like, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to push you. I don't make the rules. You do make the rules, I Vic. do make the rules and I just did. Yeah. And I just yes. exerted my all power. All five, yes, please. Yes. Oh, well, Ashling, it has been... Such an absolute pleasure chatting oh, to you. Because I feel too. like we, you know, we've chatted about lots of things in our time, but never about books. And what a beautiful way to get to know someone just that little bit better. Yes. Um, and big shout out to Vic, ladies and gentlemen. Oh. What a beautiful gal. What a beautiful host. And put your hands together for Ashling B. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks so much.
much. And yourselves. Thank you so, so much. It's been lovely to be able to do this in person, to do a live podcast recording and have all the laughs and all the applause and to be able to see your faces. We really appreciate it. I am Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast brought to you by Bailey's and produced by Birdline Media. And that is that. Yay, Birdline Media. We love them. Thanks, guys. Have an amazing rest of Latitudes. (laughs) 